Go ahead. Hello, welcome to Small Findings. I'm Jim Kang, an artist and software developer. I've started trying as often as possible to write it down whenever I find something out. Here, I try to share some of these findings with you. This week we have a tip about how to paint black without actually using black. The Witch of Endor. Surprising businesses I stumbled upon in Cambridge. Magnetars. CDNs. And the thing at the end of the faucet redux. That was Bonus Cat, a cat who lives in my apartment. I think he's eager for us to get on to the findings. <laughs> Back in episode one, I talked about painting darkness. The main thing I learned was uh, using uh, colors other than just an absolute black uh, makes dark parts look a little more realistic and uh, gives them some depth. My friend Sam wrote in in response to that and told me about a trick he learned from his wife. They both paint a lot. Um, it's to never use black, but instead to use Payne's Gray. Payne's Gray is a blue-black that mostly looks black, but it isn't. So, uh, I don't have this, but I'm very interested in trying this. Uh, maybe I could order some online still. Sam is a really good painter who has painted regularly for, for years and years. So, I trust him on this. Uh, in fact, I will link... Um, his painting site in the show notes. I was listening to a Henry Purcell piece that I discovered via a podcast that my friend Sam produces, The Visitation. I'll link it in the show notes. The piece was Funeral Sentences for the Death of Queen Mary II. It was in a collection that had another piece named Saul and the Witch of Endor. Was this uh, some kind of Bible slash Star Wars crossover? No. I looked at Wikipedia and it turned out to be 100% Bible, no Star Wars. The Witch of Endor was not an Ewok, but a human witch that appeared in the first book of Samuel. Saul consulted her to summon the spirit of the prophet Samuel so that he could get some battle advice. This was yet another one of those parts of the Bible that Christians had, and maybe still have, some trouble with. The implication here is that necromancy is real, which is not a mainstream Christian belief these days, and I don't think it was back in the 1600s. King James, sponsor of the first really dominant English translation of the Bible, felt that the necromancy was real, but still evil. And this is, yeah, back in 1597. Martin Luther, some years earlier, thought that it was actually, quote, the devil's ghost, end quote, rather than Samuel's ghost, because he believed that the dead were unconscious, so, you know, it couldn't be Samuel's ghost. But I'm not really sure how the devil would have a ghost. Is he dead? Or... Is the devil able to have a ghost without being dead because he's so special? John Calvin, who also lived around that time, said that, quote, 
It was not the real Samuel, but a specter, end quote. But was it the specter of Samuel, though? Or was it just some ghosts that happened to be hanging around, like unrelated to Samuel or, or um, you know, the witch or Saul or anything, just a random passerby ghost? Well, Luther and Calvin didn't want to believe in necromancy being real, I like that they had no problem at all with ghosts being real. There's just no questioning that it was a ghost or specter or something. Back to Endor, though. The Witch of Endor was called that because she was from the village of Endor in ancient Galilee. Its actual location is highly disputed because it's one of those things that is only ever mentioned once in the Bible. It's just the story of Saul and the Witch of Endor. It's not anywhere else. Without other clues, it's very hard to triangulate a location. A few weeks ago, I happened to walk by a local factory in Cambridge. Factories in Cambridge are somewhat rare. It's in a residential area that I've walked through a bunch of times. I had somehow never noticed it before. It turns out to be the home of Adaptive Surface Technologies. They make coatings that stop things from sticking to them. They have a demo video on their website of one of those uh, bear-shaped honey jars. Uh, And they have one that's not treated, and they have another that's treated with their coating. And um, it's hard to dump the honey out of the one that's not treated, but when you turn over the honey bear that's treated with their coating, the honey somehow slides right out. Currently, it looks like they're developing the opposite of that to help with the coronavirus. They're making coatings that they hope will bind to antiviral disinfectants. So surfaces with this coating will retain disinfectants longer, which will help with exposing coronavirus particles to the disinfectants. A coronavirus particle needs to be in contact with a disinfectant for at least 30 seconds in order to be destroyed. So if this works, It will help keep surfaces ready to disinfect for longer. They don't say how much longer, just that it would last longer than the application of disinfectant from a wipe. Not far from Adaptive Surface Technologies, I discovered the office of Sky and Telescope magazine. It's a really prolific amateur astronomy magazine that has apparently been around since 1941. There were previously two magazines, the Sky magazine and the Telescope magazine. Each of them were under 10 years old, and then they merged together. It's surprising that it's here, because this is a fairly light-polluted area. But the age kind of explains it. The Telescope magazine moved here when Harlan Stetson moved to Cambridge. The Harvard College Observatory published it for a while. Harvard has a Department of Astronomy still. I guess astronomy has moved beyond what you can see with an optical telescope, so I guess light pollution is not that big a deal. And that might be why the Minor Planet Center is also here. The Minor Planet Center operates at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory, which is in Cambridge. Why is this in Cambridge? Well, it was founded at the Smithsonian in DC in 1890, but in 1955, it moved to join with the Harvard College Observatory. 
Neither of them seemed to do their observing with optical telescopes from Cambridge. Again, probably only I'm surprised by this. They remotely operate other telescopes that are in various other places like Arizona or space. Observatory may be now understood as a place where astronomers work rather than a place where there is a big optical telescope. The Minor Planet Center is funded by NASA's Near-Earth Object Observations Program Grant. It's a central repository for positional measurements of minor planets, comets, and other small things in the solar system. They track, identify, and compute orbits for all of these objects. They have logged the discovery of 1,152 minor planets in 2020. Overall, they have logged the discovery of 930,248 minor planets. A fast radio burst is a burst of radio waves in space that's so powerful that they produce as much energy in milliseconds as the sun produces in an entire day. Over a hundred fast radio bursts have been discovered. But until a couple weeks ago, no one knew where these came from. Courtesy of aforementioned local business Sky and Telescope magazine, I found out there was a breakthrough on this front. There is something called the STAIR-2. It's spelled in all caps, so it probably stands for something. Space, telescope, something, something. It's a set of what are called radio feeds that are in Goldstone, California, Big Pine, California, and Delta, Utah. Anytime all three of them detect a one millisecond radio wave burst within 100 milliseconds of each other, a person takes a closer look to see if this is actually a concurrent observation of a single event. The Astronomer's Telegraph refers to STAIR-2 as a set of, as I mentioned before, radio feeds, and Sky and Telescope calls it a radio array. There's a term floating around radio telescopes, phased array feed, that kind of sounds like both of those. Phased array feeds are a way for radio telescopes to get a wider field of view. So maybe it's that. I'm not sure, though. Regardless, on April 28th, the STAIR-2 radio array detected a fast radio burst coming out of a magnetar. At about the same time, the CHIME radio telescope in Canada detected the same burst also coming out of that magnetar. And then two days later, on April 30th, the fast radio dish in China spotted yet another fast radio burst coming out of that magnetar. A magnetar is sometimes created after a supernova occurs. The star collapses into a core that has a powerful magnetic field more than a quadrillion times powerful than that of the Earth's magnetic field at its surface. Now, it seems they emit fast radio bursts, possibly when their super-powerful magnetic field lines get rearranged. They also shoot x-rays sometimes. I like that there are these sort of really powerful machines out there ticking away, mostly keeping to themselves, but occasionally shooting immensely powerful waves across the galaxy. CDN, which you may know, stands for Content Delivery Network. You probably get content delivered from them all the time. What makes uh, CDNs different from normal servers that deliver content to your browsers and devices 
is that they have this distributed network that makes sure that there's a server to deliver that content that's geographically close to your computer. Uh, how close it is to your computer depends on the quality of the CDN. At the very least, a CDN usually has servers on your side of the world. So a basic CDN would have servers in Asia so that they could serve requests from Asia, for example. Even having a server on your continent is a big improvement over you know, having a cluster of servers only, on, only in North America or something like that. Because if you're in Asia or Africa and you request this content, no matter what, it's going to take a while to get to you. The way that CDNs get all over the world is they pay ISPs, internet service providers, to host their servers in the ISP's data centers. And there's many ways in which CDNs route you to the closest server. But DNS is the way I happen to know about. CDNs have uh, domain name servers, just, uh, just like your domain registrar has domain name servers. Domain name servers are things that resolve things like something something.com to some IP address like 1.1.1.1, except, you know, we know that 1.1.1.1 is not a real IP address that can exist outside your local network. But that's, that's what domain, or domain name servers do. When your registrar's DNS uh, is, you know, a registrar like Namecheap or Hover or something like that, when your registrar's uh, DNS is asked to resolve something something.com to an IP address, it just points to whatever IP address you told it about. When a CDN's uh, DNS answers a request to resolve a domain name, it figures out where you are network-wise and what the closest server with your requested content is. Then it gives uh, you, or I guess more specifically your client, the IP address for that your web browser or other client then downloads the content from that IP address. So TLDR, um, if you have a single cluster of servers in North America instead of a, a CDN, what will happen is when someone requests something and they're in China, that content has to be delivered from really far away. When you have a CDN, most likely that content will be delivered from somewhere somewhere in Asia, which is a lot faster. So the reason I've talked about CDNs here, even though it's technically not a small finding, at least not a small finding for this week, it's all stuff I already knew, um, is because I wanted to talk about Netlify. Unfortunately, I recorded this segment and it's incomprehensible. It's about redirect rules and trailing slashes, and it is very hard to follow. So I'm just going to make that a blog post on my, uh, my site, jimkang.com slash weblog. And if you're really interested in that, you can read it there. It's time for Kitchen Faucet Parts Redux. As an aside, I always forget exactly what Redux means and either just wave it through or look it up again. It confuses me because it sounds like reduction. I think the key to remembering the right definition may be to remember that it's an adjective. That way you could avoid thinking, reduction of what? It is an adjective that describes something that is brought back 
like a reprise. So a lot of sequels could be titled with a redux at the end. Terminator Redux, Super Mario Redux, Spider-Man Redux, Redux, Redux. Anyway, back in episode one, I mentioned that I found out that the thing at the end of our kitchen faucet was filled with gunk. So we needed to replace it. But what is that thing? The thing I'm talking about is vaguely conical. One end connects to a hose from the faucet. The other end has a filter out of which the water sprays. I thought it was an aerator, but after searching, I found out that the aerator is actually just the part at the end. The aerator looks like a short cylinder that has a mesh screen in it. The aerator gets air into the water stream, which breaks it up into many droplets, and then the screen evens out the resulting stream. The aerator is part of a standard faucet head, but also the thing I'm talking about, which based on image searching uh, leads me to believe it's called a faucet spray head. This is the thing that connects to the faucet, then either widens the stream of water into a spray, depending on whether or not the button is pushed, or it just leaves it alone. This is definitely one of the less authoritative findings, I have to admit, but it does feel useful enough to at least help me be able to replace this part the next time. Thanks for listening. If you have any findings you want to share or any comments you want to make, email smallfindings at fastmail.com. See you next week.